go. Well, brothers and sisters, let's pray. Gracious God, as you caused Blessed Mary to hear the good news on the night when Jesus was conceived, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would help us to hear the good news again. And I pray that we would receive it with all joy and with all thanksgiving. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, who is the good news. Amen. Well, friends, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to find the Gospel of Luke. And then I'd encourage you to find chapter 1 and verse 26. We'll be looking at verses 26 to 56. These verses record for us an event in salvation history, which in the church has come to be known as the Annunciation. This event is called the Annunciation because the angel Gabriel announced or enunciated to the Virgin Mary that she was to conceive in her womb and bear a son, and that she was to call this son Jesus. The angel Gabriel then went on to inform Mary that this son of hers would be the son of God, the great king who would inherit David's throne, and indeed that this son of hers would be the salvation of the whole world. Suffice to say, the angel Gabriel's announcement was a remarkable announcement. Gabriel's announcement to the Virgin Mary was full of good news that would change Mary's life, and in fact, it would change the life of the whole world. Looking at our text for this morning, I think you'll be able to see that the text clearly divides into two parts. From verse uh, 26 to verse 38, we see God delivering the good news about his son Jesus to the Virgin Mary through his angel Gabriel. And then from verse 39 to verse 56, we see Elizabeth, John the Baptist, and Mary celebrating the good news about Jesus. And so generally speaking, we see two things happening in this text. First, we see the delivery of the good news about Jesus. And second, we see people celebrating the good news that they have received about Jesus. Now, because this story is filled with good news, I'm going to suggest that we temporarily rename these events. Because of the centrality of the good news to these events, I suggest that we call them the evangelization or the gospelization of Mary and her friends instead of calling it the Annunciation. And yeah, I invented the word gospelization. But the point is that throughout this text we see Mary and then her friends receiving the remarkable good news that Jesus is to be born. Jesus, Jesus' mother, Mary, was indeed the very first person to ever hear the gospel in clear and unambiguous terms. And so I have to think that she uh, would be happy with us attending to the good news of her son and that she would rejoice along with us. And so let's begin by looking at the content of the good news that the angel Gabriel shares with Mary. The angel begins with the announcement of favor. He said to Mary, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then when Mary is troubled and a bit confused by the announcement that Gabriel has made, he said, said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. These early reassurances from the angel Gabriel show us that God was dealing with Mary in a merciful and a loving way. God's dealings with Mary, the favor that God showed to Mary, were all an expression of his mercy 
and his love towards her. We are given no indication that Mary ever earned her position as the mother of Jesus. We're not told that she was righteous before the Lord or blameless like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Rather, the great news and the great gift that God gave to Mary were an expression of his free and unearned mercy. Mary was a sinner like you or me, and yet God blessed her, and yet God delivers to her this unspeakably good news. Now, only Mary was blessed with the opportunity to be the mother of the incarnate Son of God. But we would be correct in thinking that our receiving of the good news of Jesus is always and every time an expression of God's favor and mercy towards us. If you have received the good news of Jesus Christ, then, like Mary, you have been favored by God. If you have received the good news of Jesus, you have received it because God has extended it to you in mercy and love. We don't earn the good news. God simply gives it to everyone, even everyone who, and all of us are, undeserving. In his book, Authentic Christianity, John Stott wrote this, comparing Islam with Christianity. John Stott says, The repeated promises in the Quran of the forgiveness of a compassionate and merciful Allah are all made to the meritorious, those who merit what those who merit God's blessing, whose merits have been weighed in Allah's scales, whereas the gospel is good news of mercy for the undeserving. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. We see the mercy of God poured out on the undeserving at the cross of Jesus Christ. We see it most clearly there at the cross. But we also see God's mercy being poured out on the undeserving in that private moment between the angel and the young lady on that fateful day all those years ago. A key aspect of the good news that Mary received is that God shows favor to the undeserving. This makes the good news really good because it's not only for those who have earned it, but rather for the undeserving, which is to say, all of us. The evangelization of Mary and her friends began with the announcement of favor towards the undeserving. And this is but another clue which shows us that the good news of Jesus will be a good news of grace. Good news which proclaims abundant love being poured out on the undeserving. The next aspect of Mary's evangelization that I want us to attend to is the whole matter of the virgin birth. Right? Just a few moments ago, we confessed the fact that we believe in the virgin birth. The angel told Mary that she would conceive in her womb and bear a son. And Mary responded with what I think is an eminently fair question. How will this be, since I am a virgin? The virgin birth is one of those things which should make us lean in and wonder at what God is doing, because it's a miracle. And as we consider the virgin birth today, I want to point out how the virgin birth is an aspect of the good news, an aspect of the gospel. First, the virgin birth reminds us and shows us that God's good news has to do with what God does, not with what we do. Jesus Christ was conceived and born not by the will of man, but by the will of God. Sam Storms puts it this way. The principal reason for the virgin birth was so that the entry of God into human flesh might be by divine initiative. It is not by any human act or any human initiative that salvation comes to us. It is divinely initiated. Man does nothing. Mary did nothing other than submit to what God would do. Joseph did nothing. God did it all. 
The good news of Jesus is not the good news of what people have done for themselves. Rather, the good news of Jesus is the good news about what God did for his people. The gospel story records for us the unfolding of God's great plan, not the unfolding of some sort of human plan. Now, there's all sorts of other miraculous births throughout the Bible, right? Sarah had a miraculous birth. Rebecca had a miraculous birth. Rachel had a miraculous birth. Hannah had a miraculous birth. But the difference between all those births and this birth is that all of those others, other births involved human agency, right? Involved a man and a woman wanting to bring a child into the world. But in this instance, it's purely God acting in the world. The second thing that the virgin conception of Jesus reminds us of is the fact that God's great plan for humanity, God's good news for the world, all centers around a person. All the excitement in this story is because of the fact that a baby is going to be born. All of Christianity gathers around this little baby boy who was born all of those years ago. Jesus rests at the center of all our hope, joy, peace, and expectation. And so for the time being, it's enough to say that the virgin birth reminds us that the good news, the gospel we rejoice in as Christians, is all about a person. Right? St. Luke, at the very beginning of his gospel, is making it clear that this little baby boy is the main character. Right? The whole point of the gospel is to introduce you to him. Now, moving on through the content of the angel Gabriel's message to Mary, there's a lot to tease apart, but one of the things we need to pick up on is this whole business about Jesus being a great king. Look with me at verse 32 and 33. Angel Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. These verses resonate, and indeed these verses fulfill the Old Testament reading that was just read for us a few moments ago. God had promised King David that his kingdom would have no end, and that his heir would rule over the world forever. And so here we have the angel Gabriel saying that that heir has come into the world, that at last the heir who will occupy David's throne for ages and ages and ages on into eternity has at last arrived. And, you know, I find it interesting that so many of our culture's greatest stories have to do with great kings. It seems that so many of our stories involve a country or a nation waiting for their great king to come into the world. Perhaps one of the more famous stories is the story of the sword and the stone. The people of Britain were waiting for a great king. The people of Britain were waiting for the great king who would be able to pull the sword Excalibur from the great stone. And then they would know that that was the man who had the right to the throne. And so legend has it that King Arthur was the one who was able to pull the sword from the stone. And in the legends of King Arthur, the good news in that story is that it was a good king. Right? That Arthur was just and kind. And so the deeply and strongly felt desire for a great king to come into the world may seem remote to you. We Canadians have ourselves a king, but the current public and political discourse is such that we don't put really that much hope in our leaders, and we're generally dubious about the great goodness of any of our leaders. Most of it find it hard to express anything remotely approaching loyalty or allegiance to the people who have been put in charge of us. 
However, the kingly identity of Jesus is a key aspect of the good news that Gabriel shared, and so I invite you to consider the importance of Jesus' kingship. Within the estimation of the Bible and throughout the whole of human history, a good, powerful, and effective king signified the comprehensive and thorough flourishing of his kingdom. When a good king is on the throne, the people flourish economically, militarily, diplomatically, spiritually, and so on. Under the rule and reign of a good king, virtue flourishes, justice is observed, freedom is enjoyed, and true happiness is unhindered. As you know, recently Tierra and I watched the old Disney classic Robin Hood, which tells you the kind of movies we watch. But some of you may know the story. But to give you the basic outline, England is in a very sorry state because of their king. Their king, Richard, the Lionheart, has gone off to fight in the Crusades, and in his absence, his evil brother, Prince John, has taken over. In his wickedness, Prince John burdens the people with great taxes. He puts his cronies in positions of power. He uses his military against his own people. He oppresses the poor. He ignores demands for justice, and he stifles freedom. This is why old Robin Hood has to intervene and, as he says, steal from the rich and give to the poor. Now, though Robin Hood is the great hero of the story, the sense of completeness and the sense of resolution comes at the end of the movie when King Richard the Lionheart comes back to England. And it's then that we get the sense that all is well because King Richard is a good king. He's going to treat his people fairly. He's going to be on the side of the poor. He's going to be on the side of justice, which might remind you of the song which is coming up in this story, the song of Mary. Before the birth of Jesus, the people of God were living in expectation, waiting for a great king to come into the world. This king was to be the heir of David, and the name that was to be given to this expected king was the Messiah. The hopes and aspirations of God's people were in a powerful sense caught up with the Messiah. They yearned for him to come and to establish his kingdom on earth. And so to put it succinctly, the kingly aspect of Jesus' identity and the kingly content of Gabriel's message shows us that part of the good news is that Jesus is the Messiah and that as the great king, he will establish his kingdom. And so as we receive the good news of Jesus, part of our joy and consolation is that God is establishing his kingdom of comprehensive goodness. This is part of what makes the good news so good. Now, with Jesus' kingly identity, we're also told that Jesus is the Son of God, or the Son of the Most High. And with this title, with these titles being given to Jesus, the greatness of the good news intensifies. Right? And so with this title given to Jesus by the angel Gabriel, we on the one hand expect that God is going to send his emissary into the world. Right? God has sent his prophets over and over again, but now things are ramping up and he's going to send his own son into, into the world. Right? His own son is going to speak to God's people. His own son is going to act in human history. Now another thing that we need to recognize with this title of the Son of God is that God is also sending his beloved into the world. Right? God is sending uh, his own son the son that he loves, the son that he treasures, the, sh- the son that he cherishes. Sorry, just noticed that fell down. <laughs> you can tell him in the zone. <laughs> um, he's sending his own beloved son into the world. 
And so he's sending his own emissary into the world. He's sending his beloved into the world. And one of the things that will become clearer and clearer as we move through the Bible story, that God is sending himself into the world. Right? As the gospel story progresses, it becomes eminently clear that Jesus Christ is not like any other human being, but that he's also fully God and fully man. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 1, verse 23, it's made clear that this baby boy who's being born is Emmanuel, God with us, right? God of God, light of light, very God of very God, being sent into the world to dwell among us. And so all of this is very exciting, and all of this fills us with great expectation. And then we're also reminded in this text that Jesus is not just going to be the savior of the Jewish people or of the Israelites, but the savior of the whole world. The angel Gabriel tells Mary that she is to name her son Jesus, which means the Lord is our salvation or God saves. And that's just a general term, right? This, this boy who's being sent into the world is going to save everybody. He's the salvation of the entire world. And then uh, the angel Gabriel also says this. And this is an aspect of his kingly reign. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. And that shows us that this is not some temporary political event within the course of human history. But rather it's something eternal and something lasting. Right? Jesus setting up his kingdom is something which isn't going away. It's going to last forever and ever. Now, at the end of all of this, Jesus' mother says something quite interesting. Right? She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. And as we hear those words of Mary, we would do well to be impressed because it shows an immense amount of faithfulness, an immense amount of humility, a great willingness to serve God, right? It's a remarkable moment for one of the church's great saints. But it's also important to recognize this. Mary signs on with what God is doing in her life, right? She obeys God. She's willing for the, for the will of God to be made manifest in her life. But Mary's willingness to say yes to God means that Mary's life is going to be very different than it otherwise would have been. Right? Mary was betrothed to Joseph. They're going to live a good, normal, first century Israelite life. But then all of a sudden, God brings her this great news, and it totally shifts her life. And in a certain sense, you might say it kind of messes up Mary's life. Right? Her life is a bit of a roller coaster. Right? She has to raise the very Son of God. And then, of course, as we know, this Son of God is going to develop a movement around himself. And then he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die. And Mary's going to lose her son. But then he's going to rise again on the third day. But then he's going to ascend into heaven. And in a certain sense, she'll lose her son again. So Mary's signing on for something which is great, but it's also difficult. Right? She's saying yes to something which she's not quite sure how it's going to change her life. So having said that, let's move down into the second section, which has to do with the celebration of the good news. 
Right off the bat, we see that Elizabeth celebrates the good news of Mary. She says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And so Elizabeth recognizes that favor, which the angel Gabriel was talking about. Uh, Elizabeth recognizes that Mary has been blessed by God. But it's also fascinating because Elizabeth says, the mother of my Lord. Right? She recognizes that the little baby within uh, Mary's womb is the Lord himself, God of God, light of light. Now, the other remarkable thing that we see in this text is that John the Baptist also celebrates. And if you remember, John the Baptist is still in the womb, and he's only six months old in the womb. But nevertheless, when he comes close to the person of Jesus, he leaps within the womb. This is one of those great reminders that those within the womb are persons, right? persons with a soul, persons who can worship in their own mysterious way. And so John the Baptist celebrates, his mother Elizabeth celebrates, and then we also see that Mary celebrates. Mary begins by singing about the great mercy that has been shown to her. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Right? Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. She's worshiping God, thanking him for the great things that he has done for her. He's looked upon the lowliness of his handmaiden, to use the old language. Right? She says, God has looked down upon little old me, and yet he's blessed me. He's so good. He's so lovely. And then Mary goes on to show us that not only is God blessing an individual, but he's blessing the whole world. Right? She says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And so Mary recognizes in her song that God is turning the world upside down, that this new king who is going to be born is going to um, act differently than all the earthly rulers that have come before him. Right? And he's going to bring about a new era of justice and compassion and mercy. And then she recognizes at the end that all of this is the fulfillment of a great promise, the great promise made to Abraham, right? That he would be the father of a great nation and that great nation would be a blessing to the whole world. And then we're told that Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now, I think it's appropriate to say that what we call the Magnificat, this song that Mary sings from verses 46 to 55, um, is a song, right? It's a song of praise that Mary sings to God. And we're not sure if she actually sang when she said it. But in the wisdom of the church, the Magnificat is sung every evening at evening prayer, right? Because it's a beautiful act of worship towards God. And I think it, it's very wise of us and very good of us on this Bible Sunday to recognize that it's very useful to sing parts of the Bible, right? It's very useful uh, to find those parts of the Bible which go well to music and to sing them 
because they remind us of the great truths of the Christian message. And so that's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to sing the Magnificat, and it's been uh, paraphrased so that it rhymes, which is nice. And we're going to sing it to that great old tune, Old Lang Syne, which most of you should know. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing the Magnificat. Gracious God and Father, we thank you uh, for this good news, which was delivered to the Virgin Mary, this good news that Elizabeth and John the Baptist celebrated along with Mary. And we thank you for it because we get to rejoice in it now today. And we pray that you would imprint this good news upon our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>